When we distance ourselves from Christ, we were trying to just enjoy life as much as possible. We were um, just kind of drowning ourselves with alcohol and drugs. It was at that point that I found out I was pregnant. It seemed like to us, knowing what we knew about the world, this seemed like no place to bring a kid. And Jessica told me she was already thinking about having an abortion. Um, and that seemed right to me too. Okay, just a sec. <clears throat> I think because of that decision and the resulting shame, it really cemented us into the darkness we were experiencing. After the abortion, we loaded up a truck and moved out to Utah. We'd go out in the desert for like weeks at a time and just like do drugs and, and camp out every night. I really wanted to help people and change the world, but I was, um, I was becoming more and more um, broken up and ineffective at that. I wouldn't do drugs for six months and I would find myself compulsively shopping. When that didn't work, I started gambling. You know, I blew $1,000 in the night. I tried meditation, and I feel like um, none of them really fixed the root brokenness of our lives. I feel like the decisions that I made kind of prevented me from searching out God because I was ashamed and I didn't expect grace. In some ways, I was looking for punishment. Well, good morning, folks. Good to see everybody. Uh, welcome back to our series. We are, we are in a series called Dealing With Doubt. I should speak a little bit about the videos that we're watching. We're actually watching a series of five videos, each one a little bit different, but it features a couple that kind of grew up in the church, and as they grew older, sort of start having doubts about the faith that they had been raised in. Uh, and what you see here is just the, the, the increasing series of doubts that they have about what they were immersed in as young people, and they start exploring, exploring religion, exploring drugs. Their life starts to spiral um, as they're searching for the truth. And so that, I mean, this is a real-life real life couple with real-life issues, as many of us are in this room. And so this is an appropriate, uh, not just an appropriate video to watch as, as they are unpacking their lives and, and, and searching for God, if he's out there, but also for us as well. So we're going to be in 1 Peter today. 1 Peter's going to be in your New Testament, sort of the end, end of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I would welcome you. Uh, down the center aisle under the seats is a Bible. We'll be walking through uh, a few verses of Scripture today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 312. We'll read those as we start, and then I'm going to philosophize a little bit about a topic, and then... Uh, get back to these scriptures as sort of a foundation for what we're talking about today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. You can also find uh, the words on the screen if you want to cheat. Let's read these together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, 
you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that have been now announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church. I thank you for the opportunity to open your scripture and to have it uh, both inform and form us. God, we are people who doubt, all of us, everyone in this room. We have varying degrees of doubt about the things that we see in the world, more importantly, the things that even the Bible professes uh, to us about God and about his son, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you would impact us today, that you would uh, both inform us philosophically, but God, touch us personally where all of us are. Uh, uh, God, we pray that, uh, especially for those who are skeptics and doubts, doubters in the room, God, that you would open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see what you would have us to see, but also open our hearts to receive. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're in a series called Dealing with Doubts, and the, really the, the purpose of this series is to uncover all those ways that we, that we struggle, struggle to, to believe, that we doubt what the Bible says, what religion says about all the things in regarding to Christianity. Last week we started with uh, the topic of religion, asking the question, can there be only one true religion? All right, I can't articulate all that I said last week, but basically I posed two, uh, two big points. The first is everybody's religious. All of us are forming or have already formed answers to the big questions of life. Why am I here? What's my purpose? Um, what, you know, how do I get to what is right and what's wrong? All of us are religious. The second point was all of us are exclusive. We have a way of looking at the world. We have a worldview, a lens by which we look through the reality of our world, and we're making sense of it. And, and, and the thing about exclusivity, especially in regards to religion and belief, is we want everyone to think or believe like we do. And sometimes if they don't, we look down on them as lesser or inferior, at least in terms of their thought. Now, what I didn't give you last year was, I mean, what do you do with that information? If you're a Christian, I mean, what do I do with just the general fact that everybody's religious and everybody's exclusive? And here, here it is. Really, the goal was to simply say, if everybody's religious and everybody is exclusive in some ways, then we need to be humble, but also understanding in the way that we approach our own faith or, or irreligion. We need to be humble and understanding, because neither religion nor secular thought is going away. In fact, I said 
all of the major religions are increasing, but secular thought is also increasing at the same time. And so to get along in the world, we just need to be, what, humble and more understanding. Today we're going to look at another hard topic. We're going to look at suffering and evil. And if you think about it, the reality is we live in a world full of evil and suffering kinds of stuff, don't we? You can't look anywhere in our world, even under the crooks and crannies of, of life, uh, bad stuff is happening. And so the natural question that we would ask in regards to that is, how could a good God allow suffering and evil? Tough question. But I hope that we will at least um, dig up a few things that we should think about that. A lot of people have thought about that question over the history of, of humanity. Uh, how can a good God, the God of the Bible in particular, uh, really exist when this world is so full of bad things? And there's several categories of reasons that people have come up with. Obviously, uh, atheists would say God does not exist, right? I mean, he just, he's not out there. And there's no reason that we have evil and suffering absolutely at all. So either God doesn't exist or perhaps God is incompetent because if God is God, then the Bible says he's good. But if he's good, he would stop evil or perhaps he's not as powerful as the Bible portends him to be. Because if God were good and powerful, he would do something about the evil that we experience in this life. Unless God is also, he just doesn't care. So perhaps God doesn't exist, perhaps God is incompetent, or he doesn't care. And really it all boils down to this. A good God would destroy evil. An all-powerful God could destroy evil. But <coughs> since evil is not destroyed, it should be concluded that God either cannot be both good and powerful, or he simply does not exist. That would be the the, the argument, that, and, but that, that more than that, that's the struggle that we all have uh, with the evil that we see in our world. There's not a person in this room, there's not a person out there in our community, there's not a person in the world that does not struggle at, in some degree, with the, the bad things that happen in our world. And so, uh, to tell you how complex this topic that we're talking about today is, it has its own name, Right? It's called theodicy. Uh, theodicy is the attempt to understand the nature and actions of God in the face of evil and suffering. All right, deep topic. And what we're doing also in this, in this series is not just using the Bible, but actually turning to those experts in fields of study outside of Christianity to, to help us with an argument to formulate what we should be thinking. Uh, the principal book that we are using, uh, if you look at it, the table of contents, I've structured this very uh, sermon series on Tim Keller's New York Times bestseller, The Reason for God. I was talking to someone in our congregation before, and they got so excited last week, they went and bought the book, and with a friend of theirs, started going through it and just you know, unpacking what Dr. Keller has said in this book. I would recommend this book for all of you um, from 12 years age up. This is a great book for the, to have on your bookshelf. In particular, today, I read this book maybe three or four years ago by John Curt. He's a professor at RTS. Why Do I Suffer? Suffering and the Sovereignty of God. This is written from, a, written from a Christian perspective. However, um, Dr. Curit does an excellent job of unpacking secular thought, but also, more importantly, he, he, he takes the scripture you know, in, in many different categories and talks to us about um, why we suffer as believers and as non-believers. So I would recommend both of those books. So 
this is a complex topic. What I want to do is simplify it just by looking at two things. We're going to narrow the topic down. We're going to look at it uh, in terms of two categories, philosophically and then personally. Philosophically, we're going to look at the, the lens of the skeptic who, who challenges the possibility or the probability that the God of the Bible exists who would allow suffering and evil to happen. And then personally, we're going to actually uh, approach the text that the Apostle Peter writes and look at how suffering affects me. Why would God allow me to endure the pain, whatever your level of pain is in your life? Why would he allow that to happen? Why is God allowing me so much pain? So let's dive in philosophically. Philosophical issue of evil and suffering starts with the skeptics. And you really you have two, two, two camps of skeptics. There's the agnostic. And the agnostic says, I'm not sure if there is a God. So I'm going to live my life without any regard to God, and I'll try to make sense of evil and suffering all by myself. So the agnostic thinks that. And then you have the atheist that basically says, there is no God, and suffering and evil have no point at all. And I don't know about you, but it's not hard for me to identify and even sympathize with those who are skeptic in regards to suffering, at least a little bit, because we see it so much in our society. And let's be honest, it's just, there's a lot of evil out there. There's natural evils, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis. We have places on the earth that just like the earth just like sinks in and like sucks up people. I mean, it's not movie, it's not fantasy, it's just like real life. How about um, last week, Atlanta, 85. Now, I think somebody actually set what was underneath the, the, the highway on fire. But, I mean, who would have thought that uh, asphalt or whatever, concrete, catching on fire, and it would just, like, take away a football field's worth of, of, of highway, like major highway, quarter of a million people traveling on that at one time. Thank God no one was hurt. Crazy stuff. But not just disasters like that, but think about diseases, diseases for which we can't understand why they start and we don't have a, a cure yet, cancer, AIDS. Pneumonia. I mean, I mean, it, it runs the gamut, right? Natural evil, also moral evil. There are some heinous people out there that in the name of whatever, their wants, their dislikes, they choose to murder and rape and commit sexual abuse and genocide and violent crime just because it's in them to do those kinds of evils. And so here's what the skeptic says in regards to all that. If evil appears pointless to me, it has to be pointless. And if there's a God out there that doesn't stop evil, then, I mean, it just means that he's impotent to control these things, or perhaps that God doesn't exist at all. It's not hard to identify with the skeptic. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga, he's a very well-known Christian philosopher, provides an illustration in response to the skeptic's point of God not existing or not being able to believe the things that they see uh, from, the, from uh, just that perspective. He says, imagine you, you, you go out camping and you've brought your dog along with you and um, you look in your tent because your dog has gotten away and you're trying to find your pet dog. He says, would it be reasonable to, to, to believe that if you look in your tent and don't see your dog, that your dog is not there. All right, don't think too hard. The, the, the answer is yes. It's reasonable to believe that if you look into a tent and your dog is not there, that he or she is actually not there. Even if you got one of those little bitty pocketbook dogs, right? <laughs> like one of those you like stick in your pocket. Well, a man, man, if you do that, you, you've lost your man card. 
But if you got a pocketbook dog, put it, you know, ladies, you, it's all right for you to do this. <laughs> Gentlemen, don't. Even a pocketbook dog, if, you, if he's in a tent, you're going to see him because he's going to be like moving around, making some noise and stuff. But then uh, Dr. Planager says this, what about, a, what about a mosquito or a gnat? If you were to look into your tent, you're out in the woods, right, check it, your environment, and you're looking for a mosquito or a gnat, is it safe to assume that if you don't see a mosquito or a gnat, that there's no mosquito or gnat in your tent? Right, I know some of y'all from the South, where it's hot and, and like musky, and I mean, mosquitoes are, are out and about. You say, well, I can hear it. I'm not don't get that complex. Can, can you see a mosquito or a gnat all the time? Absolutely not. So obviously it's reasonable that I could look in my tent and not discern a mosquito or a gnat in there. Dr. Planica says this is, this is his argument. It's, it's not, uh, it's not um, reasonable to assume that. In the same way, he says, many assume that if there were good reasons for the existence of evil, that I would be able to uh, assess, assess that with my mind. If evil had a point in the world, even if God had a reason for evil, I should be able to understand that because he's given me, a, somebody's given me a mind and I'm smart, right? Dr. Planninger says, I mean, that's not a good assumption at all. Just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might allow something bad or evil to happen doesn't mean that there cannot be one. And I would like to use a, a Bible story to, to convey that thought, probably the, the most well-known Bible story of, of something bad happening to someone that was unsuspecting and undeserving is the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. The book of Genesis tells the story of the patriarchs, uh, uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was the 11th son, his favorite son. Um, Joseph was gifted to have dreams. He was arrogant. His brothers didn't like him. One day, the, 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 the brothers, 11 of them, were out in the fields shepherding. Jacob sends his son Joseph out to, to meet up with them, and they had planned so much so that they did not like their brother. They were going to kill him. And so they end up not killing him, but they end up putting him in a pit, end up selling him to the Ishmaelites, and, which ended up getting him sold into slavery in Egypt. We don't know how many years Joseph was in slavery, but he was enslaved for a long time for really no reason at all. Fast forward, Joseph has a gift of telling dreams. He ends up telling a dream for none other than the king of Egypt himself, Pharaoh. It gets him out of prison, and it elevates him all the way to the, uh, the title of administrator for all of Egypt. He's a second in command. There's a famine in the land. His brothers, the same brothers that did not like him and intended to kill him, sold him into slavery, show up uh, trying to get rations so that they would not die. And they end up in front of their brother, who is this ruler, second in the command for all of Egypt. And guess what? Joseph recognizes them. And he sees, I mean, just you can tell the, the, the rage that's in him because he lived many years in slavery and only by the grace of God um, were able to escape that. And so... Uh, fast forward, the, the end of the story basically is Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, and his brothers are really reluctant to, to do or say anything to Joseph because he know, they know that Joseph in his position could really vindicate himself and, and put them to death. But Joseph says these words, hey, you've done some bad things to me. I, I was made to suffer for many years under your hand. 
You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Sometimes there are things that go on in our lives, in the world, for which we have no explanation. But the Bible, you know, one instance of many of where God was actually in it. He was in it not for just Joseph's good or his family's good. He was in it for all the known world at that point. Tim Keller responds to this point. If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in the world, then you have at the same time a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have both. We can't have it both ways. We can't have a good and great God that's transcendent. That means otherworldly, infinite beyond our ability to even comprehend. But also have a God that we know everything that he's up to. You can't have it both ways. And so here's Tim Keller's point. If, if evil and suffering in the world uh, basically, evil and suffering in the world does not disprove the existence or intimate the impotence of God. In fact, if you're a non-Christian struggling here even today with belief in God because the evil in the world, it turns out that suffering can actually provide a better argument for God's existence than an argument against it. Another example would be philosopher, apologist, uh, writer, uh, C.S. Lewis. Many uh, of us know C.S. Lewis because of his, you know, his many, many works. Uh, one of the most well-known writers uh, of his time. Obviously, he's dead now, but we still quote him, uh, both uh, Christian and secular. But before he was a prolific Christian writer, guess what? He was an atheist. Absolutely denied the existence of God. And he writes, my argument against God, against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust but how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And what C.S. Lewis recognized was that the modern objections to God are based on our sense of fair play and justice. Think about your own self, how it's just innate in you that you don't want to see people suffer. We don't want to see it on TV. We don't even want to see it in like movies and stuff. There's something in us that doesn't want to see people treated unfairly, to be treated horribly wrong. Um, we don't want to see people excluded if they don't have to be. We definitely don't want to people see, see people die of hunger. We think everybody deserves a fair chance not to be oppressed by those who are lording over us. But here's C.S. Lewis's point. That's exactly opposed to the evolutionary thought and the theory of natural selection. Evolutionary theory is built upon survival of the fittest, the weak succumbing to the strong, death, destruction, violence of the weak at the hands of those who are strong. And so if you believe in evolution and disbelieve God, you have absolutely no basis to judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, or unjust. If you disbelieve in God and complain about the evil in the world, you simply have replaced God with some other extra natural or supernatural standard by which to make your judgment. And so back to uh, Dr. Planiga, he comments, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how. All right, I'm giving you a lot of philosophy. That's the end of my philosophical talk. Right, you can let out a sigh. Whew. 
But this, this stuff is real, right? I mean, this is, we, we have to get to this level of thought in regards to most of this stuff, even to get to, uh, to, to uncover all the ideas. And I'm just hitting the surface on it. But here's, if that went over your head, here's a summary of all I've just said. The problem of tragedy, of suffering, and injustice is a problem for everyone. There's not a person in the world that can escape the problem of evil and injustice. It, it affects us all. But here's the catch. Even if you abandon belief in God, it doesn't make the problem of evil easier to handle. And it definitely doesn't take the suffering and the evil that we experience in the world, in our lives, go away. And so we should sympathize at least a little bit with those who go through hard trials and just stuff. It's just like life is hard. And they, they make an emotional decision to just give up on God because life can be tough. Life can be unforgiving. I know people in my own family and just close friends that have had tough stuff happen and they've given up on God. It's like this. I just can't handle this life. Surely, if there was a God, he would not allow this to happen to me. It kind of makes sense on an emotional level. But, but hear me in this. Abandoning your belief in God does not help you feel better with suffering. And it surely doesn't foster human rights. Because where there is no God, there's no moral law. And that's basically what Martin Luther King said. His letter from the Birmingham jail, he says... If there's no higher law, there's no way to know if, in his case, segregating people is unjust. And so what this brings out is that if God doesn't exist, there's no foundation for good. If God doesn't exist, everything is permitted. There's no standard for what's right or wrong. We have no justification for any kind of behavior in our land. And as difficult as this question is, how can a good God allow suffering and evil? What that leads to is a similarly more difficult question. How do we get a grip on tyranny, oppression, genocide, and all the other crazy, natural, just stupid stuff that happens that we can't explain in the world that we live in? If there's not a God who says that these things are wrong. And so Here's, here's my personal belief, and I, I get this from studying all this stuff this week and in and, and past times. Non-belief in God is a bigger problem when it comes to suffering than if you say there is no God. You're left to yourself to deal with your suffering and evil. Just like the agnostic, just like the atheist, you have to come up with some way to absorb the evil that's happening in the world. And if there's no God, you, you don't even have anything to project it on. And that's why, we, that's why, as a Christian, I appreciate the scriptures. The scriptures teach us, and we even sing about this, that God is with us in the midst of our suffering. He's present, and the scriptures help us to at least deal with a little bit, really, greatly, that in the midst of our suffering and evil, God is there. In the pain, in the agony, and just the craziness and the hurt of all of our lives, we have the opportunity to see God and invite him into our struggle. And that brings us to our text. Now, one of the things that uh, the Apostle Peter helps us to understand here, really it's implied in the text, it's not stated overtly, is he's talking about the following condition of our world. That this world is not what it was meant to be, that it's not what God intended. And so the first thing that Peter helps us understand is 
is the fallenness of this world. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were in a perfect environment, and then they decide to rebel against God. They decide to be their own gods, to trust themselves. They subvert God's authority, and immediately what we see in Genesis 3 is God commences to curse several different entities in that story. He curses the serpent. He says, the serpent, you're going to crawl on your belly, you know, all the days of your life, which which makes me ask the question, I'm like, how in the world did the snake get around before that? Isn't that scary to think about? He curses the woman. You'll have pain in childbirth. Not only that, you're going to try, your desire will be to rule over your husband, but he will rule over you. And then, interestingly, he curses the man. And a part of God's curse of the man is he curses the ground. And so Adam and Eve are in, in this lush environment where, I mean, just life is, is wonderful. Okay, They only have to just like pick something and, and taste it or you know, everything sprouts up naturally. God dismisses them from the Garden of Eden. He puts cherubim there guarding it and he throws them out into a land outside of the garden where the ground is no longer lush. It's grown over with thorns. Here's the bigger picture of what's happening in that environment. God calls the ground, and implicit in this is God causes all of nature to rebel against the man the same way that man, Genesis 3, rebels against God. It's as if God was saying to Adam, all right, check it out. You see the ground. You see all of nature. This is what it looks like for you to, to, to disown me, to rebel against me in your life. This is how awful sin looks. Work that ground. And you see this every day in your own life, right? Practically, it's you getting ready for work. You're going to decide to drive instead of taking the metro. You got an important meeting at 11 o'clock, so you just want to get your mind together, and you have a flat tire on the way. It's you having an important briefing that you have to give in the afternoon, and you go to lunch just to, you know, to eat because you need to eat, and you get ketchup all on your white shirt. It's you stay-at-home moms and dads that uh, have a, a, a heavy day plan. You got errands to run, things to do, things you have to be at. And, uh, and your kid, the one that's curious, goes and not just takes the pots out from under the, the sink so he can bang on them, but he gets into the pantry and he gets the bag of flour and he just shakes it everywhere. And it's all on him. It's all over your kitchen. It's, it's those kinds of things. It's those things that make you, that just make you want to scream out, this world cannot be the way it's supposed to be, right? Was God, did you really intend for me to put up with all this kinds of stuff? We live in a fallen world. And that, I mean, that's where Peter starts to speak to us in our text. Peter is writing to a people who are persecuted. They're trying to, to make life work in the environment that God has put them in. Look at a couple of verses. Verse 6. Verse 6, Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Keep that word trial in your head. I'm going to come back to that. And then chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter is, uh, is speaking to a bunch of Christians that have been persecuted. And really, I think he starts the, the, the book with this idea of not just persecution, but, but trial and particularly that word fire. It's because in the history of Rome, the emperor would, would, would throw parties. He'd throw these huge parties in fields. Actually, they were drunken orgies. 
and the, they would do the unthinkable. To uh, it, you know, they didn't have natural light, and so to provide light at night in these fields to uh, you know light up their party, they would impale Christians and light them on fire to serve as light for um, for their parties. And I think commentaries commentators say that's what Peter has in mind when he's saying. You know, don't, don't lose heart at these fiery trials that are happening. And obviously, like his words grab us, I mean, that's a, that's a horrible circumstance, right? He says, I mean, this is going to grab them. It, it grabs us just like it grabbed them. And so Peter is speaking to, in verse 1, uh, a bunch of people who he calls exiles. They're strangers and aliens in the environment where they are. They're not in their natural land. They're trying to fit in, do right in the, in the place where God has them. And that's why Peter reminds them throughout this book, his book, of the cross. In the Bible, there is distinctly a message of grace, but that message um, comes after we see the message of the cross. Uh, I would caution you, for those of you that have been in churches and that go to churches where the pastor or the church um, only has a message that you come to faith in Jesus and there's going to be health and wealth and security and happiness. But because surely when you come to Jesus, he brings you in and he transforms you and gives you really a, a, a lot of joy. But that joy does not come as, you know, outside of the difficulties of life. You can't get joy without coming through the cross, because the cross is a symbol of death and pain and suffering and, and evil. And if we give a message that Jesus solely exists so that, to make sure that we never struggle or suffer, but leave out the cross, we've erred in articulating what the Bible says about our faith. And so Peter tells his readers, hey, I know it's hard, but you've got to understand the cross. And when you understand the cross, you'll gain the right perspective on the evil and wickedness that's in this world, but also the difficulty that you would face in your own life. And he says you've got to understand the suffering of God. Verse 10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Okay, so Peter first talks about the Old Testament prophets. He says, you know what? God used them in uncanny ways. They, they actually didn't even know what they were writing. They knew they were writing under the inspiration of God, but they didn't know the exact circumstance for which they were writing. And the exact circumstance that they were writing about was the coming Messiah who would suffer. Not because he deserved to suffer, not because he did anything wrong. He's suffering because God intended him to suffer for those who will be recipients of his grace. And, and so he's pointing out that on the cross, God suffered. Jesus himself suffered physically. Perhaps you've seen pictures. You've seen movies that portray in some way Jesus being flogged with a whip, with had balls and nails on the end of it, whelps on his body from the leather, his flesh torn to being unrecognizable from the, the flogging that he would have received. And then he would be forced to carry a beam for his own cross, you know, about six football fields length of distance. 
and then he would have been nailed in his, the flesh of his hands and his feet together on that cross. And then Jesus would be left to die on, you know, on that cross through a death of, of suffocating, asphyxiation. Jesus suffered on the cross. He suffered physically, God in the flesh, according to the Bible. But he also suffered spiritually. Tim Keller writes in his book, we cannot fathom what it would have been like to lose not just spousal love or parental love that has lasted several years, but to lose the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. What Keller is, is talking about is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, that God is one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they have dwelt together in an intimate relationship for all of eternity. And on the cross, that relationship is severed as Jesus dies for not his own sin, he suffers for our sin. Keller continues, the death of Jesus was qualitatively different from any other death. The physical pain was nothing compared to the spiritual experience of cosmic abandonment. John Piper, in his small book, 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, says, the substitute Jesus Christ didn't just cancel wrath, he absorbs it and diverts it from us to him. Scripture says it this way, for our sake, he was made to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Perhaps you are familiar with the song, a song that we sing here quite a bit, um, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. You guys know that? Sing with me. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. As wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. You guys can sing. How about that? Y'all are singing church. I love that song. That the prophetic nature of the lyrics, of, of being able to articulate what the Bible says happens to Jesus as he's on the cross. I mean, that's hard to do. And this song just uniquely brings that out. I'm drawn to the, the line, the father turns his face away. I mean, when does that happen? When is, when is it that the God looks away from Jesus? And why would he do that? And of course, we don't, have, we don't find a Bible verse that says God turned his face away from Jesus, but it's implied in the story of the gospel. It's when Jesus hung there and he incurs on his body both pain and suffering, but also the spiritual um, turning of God away from the Son who is receiving not just our suffering, but receiving the wrath that God is pouring out on him that we deserve. God the Father rejected the Son so that we could receive, so he could receive us. It's unfathomable. And that's the reality that Peter talks about in verse 12. Look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, the prophets, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, 
things in which the angels long to look at. Uh, the, 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 the thing here to point out is, I mean, the, the angels were like freaked out as, at what's going on in this story of Jesus being on the cross. Um, they're marveling at what God has done, I think would be the technical way to say what's going on. Here's the way I say it. I say they don't know how to deal with it. They're like, what in the world is God doing? Hasn't he seen the history of these human beings on the planet since he made Adam and Eve? God wants them to do right. They're always doing wrong. How in the world could God come and suffer for these rebellious human beings? And I think that, I mean, therein is the grace of God. And so understanding the suffering of God, I think is key to understanding your own suffering, but it's also key to understanding the suffering that's happening out there in, in our world. And it's not just an abstract philosophical tangent, this story that I'm trying to tell. I mean, this, this can be a personal hell for all of us because Christ put himself in the middle of our suffering. He suffered physically, he suffered spiritually, but he also suffered emotionally. You've heard this, this phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what Jesus says on the cross, one of seven sayings that Jesus said on the cross. We'll look into this a little bit more on Good Friday. And so the scripture teaches that Jesus was forsaken in his pain so God could be near us in our pain. Jesus was, re was rejected so that we could re be received. And that might sound, I mean, that, those might sound like trite words to you. For some of you, that, I mean, that might not just be intellectually satisfying. But this is what the scripture teaches about God on the cross. And so if you're going to understand suffering in any way, you have to firstly understand this world is not what it's intended. It's fallen. It's broken. Secondly, understand the suffering of God. Thirdly, we have to understand the reward of heaven. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those are beautiful words. Even if you're not a Christian, those are just some beautiful words to our ears, words that are supposed to give you hope. And what, he, what Peter means by uh, just heaven is heaven has to be real if you're going to suffer well. You're going to suffer in this life. That's a given. And so he's saying for you to suffer well, to, to get through some of the hell of this life, you, you have to really know there is a heaven, and that heaven awaits you. You can't just go through suffering without a living hope. A, a blind hope won't do. A, a fake hope won't do. A dead hope won't do. You need a living hope. Heavenly inheritance is not just spiritual. It's not like we're in a Looney Tunes cartoon. We're fat, happy, we got a toga on, we got a heart, and we're playing to the glory of God for all eternity. I mean, sometimes we think of heaven like that, don't we? That's, that's not what heaven is. He says heaven is the, it's the manifestation of being resurrected from the dead. The resurrection is not God compensating us for the, the hellishness of this life. It's God restoring us so that we can live in a perfect environment with him forever. That's what heaven is. And that really is the message of the Bible. 
You ever notice this? Genesis 1 and 2, everything's perfect. Genesis 3, hell on earth happens. And then from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 18, it's God taking us through the ups and downs, the hills and valleys of his story of redemption. Him offering us a covenant of love, trying to redeem us from our sin. And then all of a sudden, Revelation 19, God's going to make all rights wrong. Suffering will end and everything is made new. He redeems and restores everything. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection and restoration. He says, death will be swallowed up. Paul gets that from Isaiah 25, verse 7. Every bit of suffering, everything evil, everything horrible that's ever happened to you and that will happen on this earth, it's going to be swallowed up, brought into a future glory, making it better than it would have been had all that suffering never happened. I mean, that deserves an amen, a hallelujah or something. And don't you see this in your own life? Have you ever noticed that sometimes when you suffer through something, when you have to labor for something, it's better than if someone just gave it to you? Wouldn't you appreciate a million dollars if you worked and risked and just like prayed through it versus winning the, well, I don't know. You know, winning the lottery, them taking the taxes out, and then you just like blowing all of it because you like giving some to your relatives and all that stuff. Whatever happens when you win a million dollars to the lottery. I don't, I don't know. I've never done that. I think that's the difference uh, that, that, that Paul is speaking to here. There's something about suffering that will make heaven that much more better. Look at what Scripture says, 2 Corinthians 4.17. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to to be revealed in us. The scripture writers are offering to us a living hope. That this life is not all there is. And we should say, thank God. Here's the last thing that Peter tells us we need to understand the process of suffering. Verse 6, we're almost done. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Remember, Peter is writing to a people who are persecuted. They're dispersed. Life is hard. Some of them are being impaled, but also burned for no reason at all. They're experiencing suffering, and they have no reason why. That's That's the people he's writing to. And so here's what he says. He says, like like Joseph, some things people mean for evil, but perhaps God is in it. God means it for good. And here's my encouragement for all of you. Suffering unjustly, like it did for Joseph, sometimes prepares you for the life that you need to live. Your suffering doesn't have to destroy you or define you. It can prepare you, like Joseph, but more importantly, like Jesus. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 5, 8, look at this verse. Interesting verse. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. This isn't saying that Jesus learned obedience the way that, learned the way that we learn, a cognitive learning. Jesus, if he is God, which he was, uh, existed from eternity. He understood suffering. But it does say that he gained experiential I mean, he experienced suffering as a human being in a human 
body. There was something about experiential suffering that helped Jesus learn what he needed to learn as a human being so that he would be able to basically represent us in life but also on the cross. And we see this idea of suffering throughout all the Bible. I mean, there's a theology of suffering in the Bible. And if we're going to understand God and this world, suffering is necessary. Here's what's interesting. In, in the Bible, uh, there's 12 words in the Hebrew language that represents suffering and pain and anguish. There's 21 words that can be that same thing in the Greek. God means for us. I mean, there's, you can't get around suffering, at least from a, Bible, a biblical perspective. Tim Keller sums it up with this. Though Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain, it does provide deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. And I think all of us need a little bit of that. Here's how I sum this up. There's something about going through suffering that helps us understand God, which enables us to then be comforted by God. And that's, uh, I mean, I think that's the end goal. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.4. Back up to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted. If nothing else, one of the reasons why we suffer in this life is so that we can help those who are going through as well. It doesn't mean that you need to be an alcoholic to help someone that's an alcoholic. It doesn't mean that you need to experience drugs to help someone that's suffering, you know, to un, undo whatever drugs has done to them. But surely um, there's something human in us. There's something just about us that, um, that, that wants to come along some, someone that's suffering in a way that perhaps we have suffered and have made it through. And so I'll conclude with this. Whether you're a skeptic here or even a believer who's believed in Jesus for a long time, we have to do something with our questions, the questions of evil and suffering. And really, there's no, there's no entity in this world that can make sense of it other than God. And so my encouragement would be to all of us, if you have questions about suffering and evil, take them to God. Ask him first, even if you don't believe in him. Lord, I don't believe in you, but I'm going through something, and if you're real somehow talk to me through, through some medium about that. I believe God will meet you there. If you're a Christian, take your questions about evil and suffering to the cross. And here's what you're going to find. You won't find all the answers to every problem. You won't find every answer to every evil and the calamity in the world. The cross doesn't tell us every answer, but it does tell us what the answer cannot be. And that answer cannot be that God does not care, that God does not love us. What suffering does is it links us to one another, and it links us to Christ who suffered. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these people who are so patient and, uh, and really, I think, hungry uh, to make sense of, uh, of their lives amidst the evil and suffering that we even experience here in this free nation of ours. God, help us, especially those who are struggling right now with a circumstance for which um, they feel like they are suffering or help them to make sense of it or just to have a word of hope for a relative, someone who's going through and who have turned their backs and their minds and their lives just turned you off. God, help us all. Help us in specific ways with the questions that we're asking. I pray that you would help us in ways that we don't 
even know to ask. And Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, in, in our struggle to understand uh, the gospel of Jesus on the cross. And I pray that in his name. Amen.